Hello and welcome back to the Palette Plug Podcast with your hosts Kyle and Corey. What's going on, guys? Today we have Rick LeBlanc, who has been in the palette industry for quite some time uh, and has done a lot of different things within the industry from retail space to freelance writing. Uh, I would want to give him the opportunity to go through all of the things that he's done, but uh, biggest thing that I think to mention is his newsletter slash website, uh, reusable packaging news. That's not the .com, but again, reusable packaging news, the newsletter, great information source for all things going on in the reusable packaging industry. And so, yeah, I think it's just Rick, let's kind of get into it, talk about who you are, what you got going on, and we'll go from there, see what kind of questions pop up. Hi, Kyle. <laughs> Thanks for the intro. I, yeah, I'm just an old pallet head. I been doing this well I, way, way back. Like I'm an old guy. So <laughs> I graduated from high school in 1972. So one of my first jobs was working in a lumber remand plant. It was, I was, I live in British Columbia, Canada and it was cedar. So by dimensional grade lumber, make it into siding and fence material. Anyways, really ugly stuff that wasn't good enough for fence boards. We sold to a pallet company in California. We shipped it to a company called Fresno Pallet, I think it was. And it was really horrible stuff. And I thought, oh my gosh, what's going on with these pallets? They use some really <laughs> gnarly stuff for, for pallets. But I, I knew nothing until a few years later. Oh, I, I finished college and I went back to work at the mill and it burnt down and a buddy of mine got me a job oh, wow. at, at the Safeway Distribution Center and I had a lumber grading ticket and knowing nothing really at all about pallets, they said, well, you could be the supervisor in our pallet repair shop, which retailers had 40 odd years ago before it all went, you know, before the real emergence of pallet recyclers. So that was kind of how I got into pallets. But anyways, to your question, reusable yeah. packaging. We are 40, 40 years later. I worked in retail. I my side job was writing for Palette Enterprise magazine since about since the early nineties, I guess. That's the story into itself. But a lot of the stuff I was interested in was besides the palette was reusable packaging systems like totes and bread trays and bulk cases and collapsible bins and all that other stuff that we use. So so I started a website to talk about that and invariably being a pallet head, I talk a lot about pallets too. So, <laughs> uh, so it's kind of a mix of reusable packaging pallets It's called packagingrevolution.net, which back in 2009 seemed like a good idea for URL, not, and it, I, I, I call it reusable packaging news and it's free website, free subscription. Uh-huh. You know, I do all the announcements like for pallet company acquisitions, which there's been a lot of the last few yeah. years. Anything statistical. I, I don't do a lot of case studies on pallet mills. That's more of the pallet enterprise okay. uh, vibe. Yeah. But anyway, so that's free newsletter. Encourage everybody to subscribe. Uh-huh. Lots of stuff about pallets and reusable packaging. That's... That's our wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's great. Um, real quick, would you mind just like moving the mic like slightly away? 
yeah i think it's just like picking up on the <laughs> on the uh like when you're you're breathing and uh -oh. it's just kind of like scratching it up a little bit so i do apologize for that um but I think that that's interesting. So really like you, like you were saying, when you were in high school, you were working at like a lumber mill. And then from there you started working at a distribution center. And so like, where did you along the lines think like, well, I want to write about pallets. I want to, you know, to be a freelance writer. Like, did you go to, to school about with for writing or, or anything like that? Like what made it so you wanted to write about this industry? Oh, I, well, I always liked to write when I was a teenager. I used to write poetry when I was 18 or 20. I wrote a really bad novel that I never got published, but I always fancied myself a writer. And then reality set in and got married, had a bunch of kids, had to work for a living, didn't have time for any of that stuff. But I, I was doing an MBA in night school. I wanted to do something on corporate strategy. And my boss said, let's do something about pallets. So, and so I did. Interesting. Boy, and uh, I contacted Ed Brinley at Pallet Enterprise Magazine, kind of get his view on the industry as part of it. He said, well, you ever do any freelance writing? And I, I don't have time. I got four kids and a full-time job. You know, I, I just don't have any bandwidth stuff. So anyways, a few years later, I, we built a new, building a new house to have room for all those kids. And we over budget. I called Ed back. And, tell me, tell me again about this freelance writing thing. And <laughs> that was like 1995 or so. And, and so that, that began my, my freelance writing career. Really? So it was just a time and place situation kind of worked out for you. Um, and at first it was something that you really weren't that interested in. And it kind of was more of a, a matter of need, it sounds like, that kind of brought you back to it. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, to be clear, I always liked writing. And I <laughs> okay. My name in print, your byline. Oh, gosh, when I was younger, I thought that was pretty cool. Uh -huh. Oh, there was that aspect to it, plus it. Plus, it helped pay the bills for the to look after all those kids, and now just just my wife and the three dogs. But <laughs> and so it's it's been something that, like as as far as the freelance went, you were kind of just doing that, like as they needed, or was it like you were producing things and they would determine if it was something that they wanted to include in the magazine? Oh, both in, in those okay. early days. Ed was great to work with. He would assign stories and then I would just come up with stuff more from the palette user angle, like what was uh -huh. going on at retail or I would just do case studies about palette users in those days. Like I did something on a paint company and talk to their guy and you know, how, what selection, how they chose vendors, stuff like that. Try to, Increasingly over the years, it got harder and harder to do those kind of stories. But 20, 25 years ago, lots of folks would talk to you. It's a little harder to... Kind of stories. As, as years went on, it was more like, you know, we're featuring XYZ company's palette mailing system. 
and they recommend that you talk to this company and write a story. And by the way, make sure you talk about that machinery a little bit. So that's okay. kind of the way it went. These days are still stuff where Shally, who, who run Shally Brindley, who runs the business for his dad now, would say, "We've got an issue coming up where one of our one of our uh, topics for this issue is specialty." wood packaging and I don't have anybody could you go find somebody so then you, then you start going through who you know and who you don't know even doing some cold calling and say, hey be featured in Palette Enterprise yeah yeah, yeah. it's kind of like what we're doing here with the podcast you know it's just kind of throwing throwing the line out there and seeing who's interested and just giving people a space to talk about things um, and I, I think that it's interesting too like you were saying how it's changed over the years and kind of turned into different things but um i i also see that like you've written for the western palette association as well like do, you're currently doing their newsletter or doing that since for 25 years yikes since wow since, well i think yeah something like that and uh you know it's a it's a modest publication but Hey, I get to go to the annual meeting in Palm Springs everywhere, which you should totally t- try to get to. It's it's a it's a laid back, fun fun event. It's getting bigger and more corporate as as the industry evolves, but it's still a, it's still a lot of fun to go. So yeah, it's January every 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 year. Okay, gotcha. And that that's so like I'm I'm curious. Um, like at what point did you start to kind of build out this network of people and contacts that you could get this information from? And even like with the information that you put on your newsletter, is this like pure journalism? You know, you do your own research or is it people that you know who have things going on and you, you take the time to like learn about it and write about it? Um, it's a little of that for, for sure, but I don't have a lot of resources. I'm predominantly a, a one-person shop. I have some remote clerical assistance, but predominantly it's just me. So a lot of what you'll see at the website is this news aggregation. It'll be press releases, things like that, where I would disaggregate. I try to do some original content, but ironically, most of the original content I do is either for Palette Enterprise, or, or for a few other companies that I, that I blog for, names names that you would know in the, in the world of palettes. Would you mind telling us uh, the ones that just you know people don't people don't always know you know so it's helpful to to provide that information. I, I, I better not. <laughs> but oh, okay. I I do it for I do it for some of the largest companies in the industry and okay. I help blog for a couple smaller regional companies. Okay. Another one in North Carolina. Gotcha. Uh, but so, yeah, and, that, and that's typically some of the stuff's like Palettes 101 stuff. What's pallet mold? Or what's the difference between Ardwood and Softwood Stringer? And then uh, other stuff is, is more... more interesting it depends on this marketing strategy of the company are they trying to reach out to 
logistics and supply chain decision makers, for example, or are they just trying to educate a, a real palate centric audience? So it's, it, it, it depends on, on what they're hoping to achieve. That makes sense. So you're, you're writing things for different purposes, whether it's just informational resources for people to learn about the industry and what's going on. But then there's also the side of it where I guess it's more like marketing, I guess you yeah, could say so like for these businesses. More, exactly. More bigger, bigger picture kind of issues, and hoping to, to reach that different, different audience, I guess. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and I also, I was curious about um, becoming a member of the Virginia Tech's Center for Unit Load Design, uh, the advisory board. It seems like that's that just happened. Is that that's, correct? So don't a ask me what's involved. Actually, I've got a call next Wednesday, I believe, with, with Professor Horvath and the other folks on the board. And I'm looking at there's some other, some guy named Bob Treblecock who was part of the Treblecock family who founded Litco back in the day. Anyways, Bob's a great journalist. He's been a real good friend of the pallet industry. He's worked for Connor's publications, like magazines like Modern Material Handling for years. He's a leading writer. Uh, Shally's on the board. Some some pallet users are on the board and I have no idea what what's involved. I just... <laughs> Was this asked? Do you want to be on it? And I said, "Heck yeah!" yeah. Oh, so I'll, I'll next time we I'm on, uh, I'll have a <laughs> more full yeah. explanation for you. So. Yeah, definitely, definitely. When you when you kind of get into that more and explore that role a little bit more, we'd love to hear about it. I think that that um, seems like a really cool thing that Virginia Tech has going on. I, I mean, I know it's been going on for years, um, but I, I think that that concept in itself that there's actually like a college course behind teaching people about packaging industry and pallets and things of that nature like that was something that i never knew about and i spoke with um brayden from from white and sons if you've heard of them before yeah, white company yeah white and company sorry um yes those those individuals and like he was the one who had told me about virginia tech and all of that and so that was kind of where i started to go down that rabbit hole and it's just it's really cool to see it's like everybody knows each other in this industry and kind of has or dealt with certain aspects of one business. And so it's it's interesting to just learn like how we, you and I came into contact, right? Like through Jason, which like I wouldn't have expected a pallet business owner to like be able to hand me off to a freelance writer in the pallet industry, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know some of the connections are surprising, aren't they? My connection with Jason is through a longtime colleague of mine named Stuart Richardson, who at one time was the ran something called the Canadian Pallet Council, which you've probably never heard of, which used no. to be a, a cooperative pallet exchange pool in Canada till I think they went out of business about 2015 or so. Anyways, so, so that's where I met Stuart, and he later on went to sell went on to sell plastic pallets for many many years. And he, and he ran some third-party CHEP depots in Ontario. One of them is the one that, that Jason now owns. So, and like you say, through all these crazy connections, I, we got to know Jason, and he's just such a class act. He's such a, yeah. such, such a good guy. That yeah. I, that we should get in touch. 
Yeah, he was great to talk to. I think that he he added a lot to the conversation and and his perspective was very much appreciated. Um, I think that something that I had taken note of in uh, the bio that you had sent over and you kind of you didn't touch base on it, but you you and Stuart had written a, a book together, correct? We did. We did. With with the title titled Palettes of North American Perspective, which which a prospective publisher cringed. <laughs> I don't know. I forget why, but he didn't like didn't like Stuart's title. But basically, so we published that in 2003. We've been talking about writing it since about 1995 or so. And it, finally, in the early 2000s, we thought we better better do this finally. And so we did. We self published it. I think we printed all about. 500 copies which how would how would somebody go about finding that book well Corey, great question <laughs> i <laughs> i'm trying desperately because this is the 20th anniversary right now so i'm desperately trying to get out a new and approved 20th anniversary edition before the end of the year so okay hopefully by by the fall i'm hoping to have it ready in time for the interpel conference in montreal in, in early october Stay tuned. And what it is, it's just a little bit of everything. It's, it's for mo- most folks within the industry, you're going to read chapters and go, oh, this is so basic. But hopefully there's other chapters you go, oh, I didn't know that. So it's, you know, we talk about basics, history, basic design, basics of palette control and management, uh, different alternative materials. The palette market are kind of, aggregation of what we know in terms of statistics work that seems to be important to a, a lot of folks who want to know how big the pallet industry is not i mean it's dude it's like two or three billion pallets how many how many you plan to sell not, <laughs> right but uh, nevertheless that seems to be something people want to know. so we'll probably publish it on amazon this time on amazon self-publishing see what see what happens yeah, yeah watch, I, watch from that in the fall now i, I know i'm extra motivated to try to, to get it done. yeah yeah now now you're going to be held to it now <laughs> <laughs> it's out there and it's it's for people to learn about but hey well, you I, know when it, i could i could yeah. find it like you could type it in and google and it would like pull it up but mm-hmm. i would like i was trying to find a hard copy of it and nobody's got one so yeah i think you have to go to one of those old rare maybe on ebay or ebooks or one of those kind of obscure book sites to find oh okay i've got two copies right here i can uh hang on there's (laughs) there's the the original query there it is all it's all it's glory and you go but uh yeah that's pretty awesome and and you know when it comes time when when you uh, release the the anniversary version, you know, let us know. We'd be more than happy to have you back on. You can talk about it again. And um, I mean, I, there's the Facebook group as well. If you're not in there, feel free to post about it in there. Just trying to provide as many resources for people to connect with each other and kind of share that information. It looked like you wanted to say something, so I <laughs> didn't mean to cut you off. No, not me. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought, I thought you had like gestured, um, that you were, you were trying to say something, but yeah, I think, I think that it's, it's awesome that you, you've 
been involved in the industry for a, a long time and, and you're doing all of these different things. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like when, when you had said retail pallet management from like 1980 to 2011, like what did that consist of? Were you like a, a manager at a facility or were you a salesman? What, what were you doing? Well, I was, I was a frontline supervisor, warehouse foreman. And at that time, a lot of retail chains still had on an on-site champion or somebody designated at least part-time to look after the pallet piece. So I had those days in 1980, I had paper ledgers and we, we had pallet exchange, which was a thing in those days that was started out, the wheels were falling off the wagon even at that time because retailers didn't fix pallets. So many broken ones in the system that finally came to a head by the end of the 80s and really opened the door for Shep to, to get a real strong foothold in the market. But So I was part-time warehouse supervisor and part-time pallet head. And so I did the bookkeeping and I, we, we lost a boatload of money and I'd walk yeah. around and talk to all our receivers and say, can't check the pallets. You can't give pallets back if they're broken blah 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 so we did all that stuff and we lost a boatload of money but i was young and keen in those days i had an executive sponsor i had the distribution center manager director the top guy the terminology has evolved over the years but so he was a pretty good supporter so i nagged the heck out of all those poor receivers and shippers and and eventually we established pretty good control and and lucky at that time, fresh produce back at that time, a lot of it was still coming on the floor. It wasn't even palletizer. It was crazy pallet sizes. I think we really, had, I think the produce industry, even in the early nineties, there was 37 different pallet footprints being used in fresh produce. And it was all really commodity specific, like shipper would decide which worked best for them. And so you couldn't even rack any of that stuff at the warehouse. It all pretty much had to be staged on, on the floor and so at anyways to make a short story really long the uh a lot of that time they were converting onto 4840 so suddenly we had this huge new influx of 4840 pallets into the system so all of a sudden i was looking like a rock star because we had all all of a sudden we had lots of pallets by so i'd be you're... tell us about that <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear it. I'm curious. So, like, you're saying that in the now was this this is Canada? This is in the well, United no, States? Bit, you know, even in Canada, even in Vancouver, ninety percent of our fresh produce is sourced predominantly from the states in those days. Less so from Mexico at that, that time. Yeah, it would have been. When I cited thirty-seven different footprints, that was from the produce pallet working group I, I think that came along in the early 90s and they were looking to standardize carton sizes and pallets mm -hmm. it, a lot of push a lot of is you know there was a certain amount of resistance to going to 4840 as there had been back in the 60s in the grocery industry in the, in the 1960s a lot of grocery retailers they all had 40 by 32 two-way pallets they could fit them three of side, I think, trucks. 
and, and they were racked that way. And so, but all the grocery manufacturers in the 60s, they wanted to standardize on the general foods palette, which is a 4840. And it made a lot of sense for them, bigger pallet footprint, ship more stuff per unit load, a lot of efficiencies. And, and eventually they won, they won the day. So they converted everybody onto 4840 and in, in the, in the groceries in the in the sixties rather in the produce people a lot later. Hmm. I'm there curious to see but, huh? What did you say? I say there there's a sorry about the history lesson, but yeah. no, no, again, that's what we're here for yeah, exactly. Like that's that's what we want to learn. I think that that's kind of like the modern individual who comes into the pallet industry most likely has seen some YouTube video that sold them on the concept that they can make a lot of money very quickly off of this. And so we're trying to bring some realism to the industry as well and kind of teach people on the history and where it came from, why it is what it is, you know, like why it's important to uh, the supply chain and, and all of these things. So I think that, you know, you're a great resource. You have a lot of information and, and the more that you are willing to share, it's it's all appreciated on our end. And I hope that it that it translates to our listeners as well, where people who are tuning in are listening for that specific reason, you know, to hear stories of the industry and where it's been, because I, I'm, I'm 27 years old, you know, so like I do not have much information on the industry and the history of it. And so to be able to learn from somebody like yourself, you know, it just continues to, to push my passion further with the industry, because now I'm actually learning more about the palette itself and all of the things that go into it. It's not just a, you know, product sale. It's not just a piece of wood and nails that you make money off of. You know, there's, there's more to it. There's reasons why it's the shape that it is and how that's changed over the years. And so like, we are all, all for the, the history lessons and the stories. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for humoring me. Yeah. <laughs> well, which yeah. one came first, the palette or the forklift? Oh, dude, Corey. <laughs> uh, Stuart and I like to say pallet came first but it was probably the forklift For, I mean there was what we like to call prototype pallets there was bases used to store like cradle pallets there was cradle pallets around in the like 1600s that you could put kegs on which was a common form of packaging of those days kegs and but they weren't really transported. They were stationary. Part of the definition of pallet is that it not only stores and protects goods, but it used to transport them. So that didn't happen. So initially, so then shop pallets evolved, shop skids rather. And usually they were like planks with steel uprights, with steel stringers, so to speak, or legs. For the forklift, truck there was it was this called a um a tiering truck and it didn't have forks it just had a single plate so you couldn't have it there was before the sink single the center stringer so you just had the outside stringers the platform the plate would go under the the whole bottom side of the skin and, and pick it up and then as those evolved you could stack double stack them and get space better cubitalization and the low ceiling warehouses that they had a hundred years ago 
and then somebody got the bright idea to to uh, put the stringer in the middle to increase the strength and put the bottom deck board on so you collapse plus you had to you'd spread the weight so you wouldn't crush you could stack more product than you could previously because of the weight distribution of the bottom boards so to Corey, to answer your question, I think it was probably the four, forklift came first, the, the, before the modern pal. But th don't hold me to it. Don't hold you to it. So you think <laughs> the, the forklift, purely for the means of like trying to find an easier way to move things around, and then from there they said, well, let's put it on something, some sort of platform, and then we can move that platform around? Is yeah. That... Okay. I think so. Yeah, the, 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 certainly the word platforms before mechanization and, and lift trucks, and then as lift trucks evolved, I think it was George Raymond. Perhaps he had a patent in the '30s. He had the idea for for the development, and I'm not sure. There's a guy in Italy who just wrote a wrote a book about the history of pallets and the forklifting. It's probably in his book when oh. And the platform evolved to the to the forks. I have to have him on the show. I don't know how it's English is. <laughs> okay. I mean, it still would be a fun conversation, it sounds like. Maybe we'll have to try and find the translator or something like that. Right. Well, I mean, there's Google. <laughs> yeah. Bell. Yeah, but they have like an actual translator. Because there was there was actually a company uh within the Facebook group that's like from Ukraine. And yeah, I, I remember reached out to I them. saw that. Yeah, and they were they were curious about coming on, so the guy was like, I'll try and find a translator, and hopefully that goes well. We'll see what happens. Um, yeah, the, uh, there, there's a lot of pallets that come out of you, create a lot of ePal pallets. Mm -hmm. We have a, a Facebook, not Facebook, rather, sorry, a LinkedIn group called EUR Pallet, Euro Pallet LinkedIn group, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of posts there from Ukraine, a lot of super competitively priced pallets. I don't know. My pallets are so cheap coming out of Ukraine. But a, lot of, a lot of good, so good on them. Something They're, to ask about. Some the harvesting <laughs> of, of Russian lumber. Yeah, that that was a good question. And I, I'm, so I, I think that we've kind of like touched on this too. Like the, the original design of pallets more so were skids, you were saying, versus a pallet. Yeah. And so it started out, you think it was morally just like, let's elevate this thing, let's get it off the ground and give us a way to kind of be able to get underneath of it and pick it up more easily. And then uh, but do you think that it's like as shipping evolved, they started to find a, a need to change this? Or like, what do you think really kind of kick-started the, the redesign of pallets or the changing in design of, of things? You know, there was, I think, a lot of frontline operator material handler innovation that went on over the course of years there there was a, a guy who used to write in pallet enterprise magazine this amol something i forget anyways a lot of what i know i ripped off from him and <laughs> he, he wrote kind of a retrospective in enterprise in the earlier mid 90s i think for a lot of manufacturing as well as a pal built the story about in the early days operators stiff loads like like bundles of lumber for example you know and the operator 
lich truck and you know and i wasn't into it put space which i used to do in the 70s Greenland plant you'd get up and, and stick these dunnage blocks in so you could stack the top bundle and extract your your forks and that kind of stuff went on and then somebody got the bright idea to to nail stringers so you wouldn't need to get out do that but then you'd have collapse issues so then somebody got the bright idea to put the bottom deck on and it, and it evolved evolved from there and so it from for the book i did a lot of research just going over microfiche old old trade magazines and, he, and in the 20s full page magazine ads promoting the use of pallets for shipping stuff and rail cars so you wouldn't need to hand bomb it into the rail car and hand bomb it out of the rail car but it was pretty rare it, it, it grew over time there's a lot and then you hit the 30s and there was a lot of labor was cheap there was no really nobody had money to mechanize to buy forklifts to do palletized handling although it did happen it was happening in industry and then during the war at world war ii there was a lot of investment by the government palletization took off really and it, especially in the pacific theater of war in the pacific where you had a crazy long 5,000 mile supply line that took know, 200 days or something for product product to get there, there there's this retired economics prof from university of new hampshire i i used to go straight for the nature's packaging blog and there's a blog in there that talks about gopos and there, there was a lot of resistance to technological change people were afraid it was going to take jobs private contractors during world war ii were instrumental in, in introducing modern practices of the day like forklifts it really was onward and upward after that and here we are today lots of barriers along the way you know, 60s 70s lots of pallets ending up at landfills yeah. horrible stuff even in the early 90s or gosh the first promat show i went to north american marriage material handling show it was in detroit at the time it was 1996 having dinner with ed brindley guy who was around the national wood pallet container association of the day john healy and they're gonna wall street journal about scourge of wood pallets i remember they're breeding like rabbits or in parking lots <laughs> or in alleys but lo and behold, the, the solution to that was already well underway, and that was the introduction and emergence of pallet recycling. That it, at first, it was you, companies would pay recyclers to take those pallets away. Yeah. It just seems crazy by today's standards. And uh, they'd take them and fix them, and eventually they found markets for them that convinced pallet users that used pallets at a cheaper price worked really well. So, and so pallet recycling, you know, really took off in the eighties and in the nineties. So even by the time that sure. Wall Street Journal hit the press and we're all sitting at dinner in Detroit, horrified, we're horrified by this story in the Wall Street Journal. It was really transforming 
continue to do it's like continue to do today rather laugh <laughs> so so really like Alec recycling wasn't a thing until like the the 80s 90s you're saying like not as well in a, in a small way it, it's been happening since the 50s mm-hmm. i think there was articles from the 1950s guy named Bill Sardo, who was the first guy to run the National Wooden Pallet Container Association. Oh, wow. After oh, it's that two. old. And he wrote in the 50s and 60s and publications like Modern Materials Handling. And he'd talk about the need for pallet repair. And that was part of the deal with the pallet, GMA pallet exchange system, too. You were supposed to pallets. You weren't supposed to give them back unrepaired. And they, part of the that narrative was maybe you don't something you don't want to do in house. Maybe you want to outsource it, have somebody else repair your company. So there were more pallet repair companies versus recyclers who were buying cores refurbish. Yeah. That was something. So it was more of, like an an on site recycler, I guess. Well, you could it could say. be on site or or off site where, okay. where they would yeah, and then over the course of time, it, it recycling emerged. You would just retailer would just sell the cores or give away the cores and fly back repaired pallets that may or may not have. It's interesting to to like hear how that kind of evolved, and I I never really thought about it. How it's like, like at at a time pallets were kind of like not necessarily new, but I guess the retail space kind of didn't know what to do with them at a certain point, it sounds like. And then they just kind of threw them out and they said, well, this is what we're supposed to do. It's trash. You know, it's a one-time thing. And then later down the line, I mean, the companies that were manufacturing them, I, I'm assuming saw the the need to recycle and reuse. But then there was also like the entrepreneurial spirit of people, it seems like as well, that kind of saw a need to, to problem solve and kind of fix this issue of things of, of a reusable material being thrown away. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. No, I think a lot of it was entrepreneurs. The, the, the pallet manufacturers, a lot of them didn't repair what, like if they'd make heavy duty reusable pallets, they would repair those pallets for customers, but it was truly the opera entrepreneurs, like Doyle from the pallet factory and, in Memphis, he was selling drinks or something. I, I forget what the, his story is. It's we've got it in the book, and it's been written about elsewhere. You know, he'd go to sites, acres of pallets, and guys had complained. You know, they'd offer to pay him to take him away, and then he had another account who was short, who owed, who was supposed to return thousands and thousands of pallets to I don't glass bottle provider or something the light bulb went off and thought, oh, I'm going to get paid to take these pallets and then I could sell them to this other guy so he's making money on both ends and in those days people just kept on making new pallets nobody reused pallets pretty good shape pallet and they're probably you know by today's standards a lot of a lot of lumber in them and so there was a lot of entrepreneurs like that and so recycling evolved and at first there was 
pallet manufacturers were, were established. They had a certain level. The entrepreneurs at first, I think, kind of felt like second-class citizens. They had to really mind their time before they were really embraced by, by the industries. Even like entrepreneurs today, everybody, you start, just kind of get your toe hold, and you survive long enough that you become part of the club or the club changed <laughs> a bit halfway and that's what happened with a lot of a lot of the mainstream pallet recycling company or pallet manufacturers some of them started pallet recycling operations also although they tried to keep them apart because recycling is a lot you know it's a lot messier than yeah new pallet manufacturer well it makes sense and and you're you're right i can i can see the club thing that you had mentioned and then yeah where it's like if you you kind of just have to like stick around and keep doing what you're doing and stay committed to it and um you know take pride in what you're doing i think is super important and just reestablishing value and trying to continue to to showcase that value that you're trying to to be or build for people um but to your point in regards to the um like the the kind of sticking around aspect of it i think that kind of seeing or i'm sorry more of the the separation aspect of it for between the manufacturing and the recycling i I think that that's kind of interesting that it wasn't a same facility type situation they did try to keep it separate which makes sense you know like you are if you have a whole bunch of new lumber you know like and and the mess that can come along with recycling and breaking pallets down and things of that nature i could see why you would want to have two separate facilities um but again you were saying go ahead sorry no i said yeah i mean to the to your other point it's a, it's a huge industry and and for there's a lot of opportunity it's a get rich scheme by any means it's, no you know pallet picker i've never done it but i imagine it's a really really hard job yeah <laughs> and, and it's it's like, you know, you're, you're hand your hand stacking all those pallets on, on trucks i've done a little of that I, a lot of work yeah. and joy, and but there, there's opportunity there. Exactly. So everybody, and there's a lot, a lot of different niches where people can add value and make a living. This basically a living. Really built a built a company or anything. So <laughs> I, yeah, I wish everybody well. There's there's lots of stuff going on, and uh, don't forget to read my website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I see here that we're we're running uh running out of time, but I think maybe we can kind of we'll, we'll like summarize that sure. like what you just said. I think that you're absolutely right. There is a bunch of different niches within this industry and opportunities, and that was honestly like one of the first podcasts that Corey and I talked about was like if you want to get into this industry, like figure out what direction you want to go. You know, like are you just trying to make beer money for the weekend? then you're probably just going to be a pallet picker. And that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But build good relationships with the business owners that you're going to be removing pallets from. You know, don't be the guy that just kind of like swipes them when nobody's looking. You want to make sure that you have a, a reputation that you can take pride in. And then also be good to the um, to the pallet company that you're selling your pallets to. You know, like if they know that when you show up with pallets, they don't even have to really grade them because you actually take the time 
and and consideration in the palettes that you're picking up and bringing to them like i mean Corey can probably attest to it like the guys that he works with i think that half the time they don't even really look at what he brings in they just know that he's a, a trustworthy and reliable person um oh, but then they still grade on they just you know there's they, they trust you yeah there's times when i'll show up with you know 250 300 pallets and they're like okay Corey, here's the deal and we just go on with what they say mm-hmm. i'm not going to argue with them you know yeah yeah but then there's there's again it's like people like like Corey's a good example where he has his own customers and his own clients that he takes care of and sells pallets to but he also supplies the pallet yard and then he also sells lumber on the side so like there's a whole nother niche that you can kind of get into and I, I think it's, I think the biggest point from that concept is to just identify what problem you're trying to solve and then do it in the most honest and trustworthy way possible. And I think that that's just really all you can do if you're trying to start a business, you know, trying especially... to be a tree hugger without being a tree hugger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll care about the environment, you know, like this is. We consume a lot of lumber in this industry, so we should try and reuse and repurpose as much of it as possible. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that that's kind of the whole point. Like there's this one guy who posted in the Facebook group the other day, I think he said there's like thousands and thousands of like pieces of lumber that are, what were they, like 32 inches long or something like that. Like they couldn't really be used as um, as board, like top or bottom boards for, for a pallet, but he was like one of the one of my favorite parts about this industry is that I, I get to recycle and reuse things and like I don't want to send thousands and thousands of pieces of wood to the landfill. So he was reaching out for help and seeing what suggestions people had within the group and it was things from like mulch to I was saying like check out farmers or maybe woodworkers might have a need for it or something like that. Like if you've got thirty two inch deck boards, let me know. Yeah, well, I think that didn't you. I think you commented on it or something like that, but um, I've got a buyer. God, <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I think I, again we're co- we're coming up on on the time, so I want to make sure that we don't cut it short right at the end. Is there? I want to make sure I give you the opportunity to talk about the things that you want people to have interest in. I know you mentioned reusable packaging news. You know, have people sign up for the newsletter. Check that out. Um, what else? Is there anything else you'd like uh, to? Yeah, other than if you're interested in being featured in Pallet Enterprise, and again, I'm just a contractor to them, but Pallet Enterprise is Pallet Picker. So if you're just a, give, reach out to me, I'm happy to talk to you about it. But just to get to your point, absolutely, there's so many opportunities. Keep networking is huge. Be professional, like you see, provide good yeah. service, make connections. People are starved even for, I don't know, if you're an entrepreneur, maybe you don't want to be an employee, but there's tons of opportunities, capacity issues where they're looking subcontractors or maybe there's opportunities to get some financing, you know, so you can have a bricks and mortar site that work with another company. I think that's my big takeaway. There's lots of opportunities to keep your eyes open do a great job worth checking out for sure yeah definitely and and it's very much an industry where like you have a direct impact on the business that you're working with if you're selling them crappy pallets 
then that could cause a lot of lot of issues for them and so like to to value what you're doing and to take pride in it and to ensure that you're providing a good product and and being honest with people that it's not going to be you know it's just the best way to continue to to build that trust uh around, and and want people to continue to work with you all depending on which direction you choose to go well put well put well guys hey thanks so much i super appreciate having the opportunity to come on the show it's great meeting you both yeah Bill. wishes with the palette plug and kyle we have to talk about some partnering opportunities we'll do that off the air yes absolutely rick thank you so much we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing we'll definitely have to have you back we, we want to know uh what's going on when you go to the virginia tech thing and keep us posted on the book or maybe when you want to do you could do a book release on the podcast if you want to as well we'll have to there's many opportunities for us to continue to work together and, to, and for you to continue to to share your stories and talk about the history of the industry so Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thanks so Take much. Care. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Bye. You now. too. Bye-bye.